lot of folks are still out of town or maybe too full from Christmas dinners to be here this morning, but uh, glad that you are here. And uh, we're going to be continuing to go through the Gospel of Matthew, so if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 6. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. There's a table of contents in the beginning, and turn to Matthew, which is the first book of what we call the New Testament. If you're just here checking things out and Christianity out, there's a little bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources back there. Please pick up anything that... uh, you would like, it's our gift to you. We're just really glad that you are here this morning. Um, this morning, I'm going to be talking about a subject that probably as soon as I mention it, kind of a wave of guilt will kind of envelop the auditorium and will immediately begin feeling bad because we don't feel like we're doing a great job of this. Um, it's a pretty universal practice. Um, George Barnett did a poll in 2017 and 79% of our country has done this at that time within the last three months. Um, what am I talking about? Um, I'm talking about prayer. Um, the latest stats that I saw that now 29% of our country is in the none category with no religious affiliation. But it's interesting that even those with no religious affiliation or sometimes even an atheistic orientation will still pray periodically. And I don't think that's anything new. In Jesus' day and age, too, there were people that were praying. It was much more of a world in which people believed that there was a God or gods out there, and so people would pray to these gods. And among the Jews, they probably had a right conception of God, but their struggle with prayer was, as we see Jesus talking about these Pharisees and the hypocrites, that they would pray in ways that would draw attention to themselves, to kind of demonstrate how spiritual and righteous that they were. So remember the story about the the publican and the the Pharisee, and the Pharisee comes and he says, man, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy over there, a miserable sinner. I thank you. I'm a wonderful person. How great I am, and that guy's just the scum of the earth. Now, is that a prayer? Not really. That's just a declaration of how wonderful that person is. So Jesus has some issues with how Jews in his day were praying. But he also has some issues with how the Gentiles or the ethnic groups of the world were praying as well. And he talks about that in this section, that they would often go on and on, endlessly repeating these phrases, um, sometimes doing really drastic things to themselves to try and get God's attention. So they oftentimes were really sincere but their problem was they had a really misguided view of who God was, right? You guys remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the showdown on Mount Carmel, right? And Elijah gets up there and it's like, okay, we're going to see who's really God here. And so he lets them go first and he says, okay, we're going to set up the altar and whichever God kind of lights the altar on file and takes out the sacrifice, that's God. And so the prophets of Baal are up there, they start in the morning and they're just doing all their things on and on and on and on and nothing is happening. And I love it, Elijah, he gets in a lot of digs, a lot of sarcasm. He's like, hey, maybe your God had to use the facilities, so just keep praying a little bit harder, right? And then they got to that point where they were actually physically cutting themselves in order to show their dedication to Baal and God. So there was some earnestness in their prayer, right? I was just reading in Zechariah, and it was talking about 
false prophets. And he says, there shouldn't be any more false prophets in the land. There's going to come a time where those prophets will just shut up. And you'll ask them, you know, so you're a prophet? And they'll say, no, 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 I'm not a prophet. And you're going to say, well, then what are all these scars on your chest? And so what was that? It was a mark of a false prophet. They were so serious about prophesying in their false god's name that they would often cut themselves. So their bodies were scarred in dedication to a belief in God that was just false. And so into this world about confusion over prayer, Jesus comes and he calls people to himself. And we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of God's manifesto for what we as believers are to live like in this world. We are kind of the vanguard of the kingdom. The kingdom has come and it has penetrated into lives. And he's called his disciples up and he says, this is what I want you all to be about. And we've been going through that. And now we get to the section of the... Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about prayer. And prayer to me is the real me relating to the real God, seeking to connect with the real God. And both of those things have to be there. It has to be the real me that I bring, not this polished up, oh, I thank God that I'm so righteous, never had an angry word with my spouse, never yelled at my kids, never got frustrated in traffic. I thank you, God, that I am as righteous as I am. That's not the real me, right? And even if I'm going to the real God, if I'm going in that way, I don't think we're connecting with the real God. But the other aspect is to bring all my needs and concerns, but to go to an image or a picture, an idol of, quote, God that is not true. And into that world, Jesus comes and... He says, this is how I'd like you to pray. Do you want to really connect with the God of the universe? To have a real relationship with him? This is how you should pray. In Luke's version of this, the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I was listening to what I was teaching. I said, that's the only time that his disciples ever in all of the Gospels said, teach us something. They don't say, Jesus, teach us how to heal. Jesus, teach us how to share the good news of the kingdom. This is that they say, teach us how to pray. And so I think this is probably that main thing that we need to get right. And I think the disciples saw that. This is like the source of Jesus' amazing life as he brought the kingdom into this world. It was this relationship with his father that so often was focused on time spent with his father praying. And the disciples saw that and said, man, teach us how to do that. And so we pick up the story in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 7 of chapter 6. And this is what Jesus says. And remember, this is in the midst of a section where Jesus is saying, okay, people are practicing their religion in a way that is just ostentatious to bring glory to themselves. I don't want you to do that. And he says, this is how I want you to pray. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God. So this is what's called the Lord's Prayer. The source is the Lord, but it's really a prayer for the disciples. And if you read through this prayer or say this prayer, I time myself. The version that we have in Matthew took me 19.3 seconds to pray through. There's a shorter version in Luke chapter 11. It took me 13.3 seconds to pray through this prayer. I love Jesus. He says, don't go on babbling like the pagans. And here he says, okay, this is the kind of prayer you should pray. It's going to take about 20 seconds to pray this prayer. Is this prayer just meant to be recited? I don't think so. Jesus says, when you pray, pray then like this. He does not say, pray this. This is the exact thing you need to pray, but pray like this. And I was listening to uh, Tim Mackey. He's uh, the guy that does the Bible Project. Incredibly spiritually insightful person, I think. And he was talking about how this prayer kind of matches up so well with the great commandment, right, that you find in, in Matthew 22. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And how does he answer, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? (laughs) And he gives two, basically. And it's interesting that if you were part of the synagogue at this point in time, there was a first section of a prayer that they would often recite that sounded very similar to this first section of the Lord's Prayer here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is heaven. Slightly different, but that was present there. But none of the second section was part of the prayers that they prayed. And so, to me, this is this beautiful picture of, okay, how do we fulfill this great commandment to love God and to love other people? And we find Jesus saying, this is how I want you to pray. And if we see the structure of the prayer, the first half of this prayer is solely focused on God. Look at the pronouns in there. You, 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 your kingdom, right? And then the second half switches to us, we, our. So the first section is all concerned with God and his glory and what it means for us as we walk through this life to love God and how we should pray that we are able to love God. And so he starts out here. He says, pray then like this. And again, I don't think this is meant to be a recitation because if you look at Luke, let's turn over to Luke 11 just to get you guys on the same page with me. So this is Jesus. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, Luke 11, 1. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So if you're really busy, you can go to the prayer in Luke, and it'll take you six seconds less. I know everybody's so busy. So, But the point is, if Jesus was saying, okay, this, these have to be the exact words you say, and unless you use those words, God's not going to hear you, that's not what he's saying. You've got to remember, Jesus was a traveling teacher. He went from place to place to place. And every time he went to a new place, I don't think he came up with totally new material. That's the great thing about being like a traveling evangelist. You can nail like four really good sermons and then you just bring them place to place to place, right? 
Jesus, I don't think, came up with a new parable for every location he went to. But he used some of these same stories. So I think Jesus is teaching people many places where he goes how to pray. And it's not the exact words, but if you look at the prayer in Luke and the prayer in Matthew, the structure of those prayers and how they're organized is very, very similar. The first section is all about God and his glory and his kingdom and his name being revered and his will being done. And then the second half of that prayer is about the needs of the body of Christ. And he says that's bread, basically, that's forgiveness, and that's spiritual protection. And those things are in both of these prayers. So I think this is kind of a structure on which Jesus says, this is how I want you to pray. And I was challenged by this probably seven or eight years ago. You know, and it was just like, okay, how do I pray? And I'd done various things, you know, I'd journaled my prayers, and I'd done the ACTS acronym, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, and all that kind of stuff. And and I don't think any of those are bad, but it was just like, like, okay, Jesus says, this is how I would like you to pray. Maybe I should actually pray how Jesus says, this is how I want you to pray. Maybe that would be a novel idea. So since that time, basically, I use the Lord's Prayer kind of as a structure around which to build my prayers. And I think it's really key, kind of the the movement through this structure and how it begins. In Matthew, it begins, do not be like them, verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Some of us hear that, then why do I pray? I've got... And I was thinking about that, and it's like, wow, that really reveals what I think about prayer, doesn't it? If I'm not going to pray, if God already knows what I want, then prayer is primarily about what? Me and my needs. If I want to say, ah, forget, he already knows, so why pray? Well, then there must be something more to prayer than just bringing my list of, these are all my needs, God, I want you to act on my behalf, He already knows that. And far from that being a disincentive to pray, Jesus starts and it's like, that should move you into prayer. That's where you begin, already knowing that God is a good, good Father. And that's where he starts the prayer, our Father in heaven. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus' favorite way of addressing God was Father, over and over. Now, there were certain Jews at that time that would address God as Father, but it was much more uncommon and Jesus said this is how I want my followers to address my father you address him as your father too and I think this is really important first because the beginning of our prayer focuses on God and not on us that doesn't come till the second half of the prayer it begins by centering and focusing my attention on who I'm praying to and who I think this person is that I'm praying to. And Jesus says he's a father. Now I know this is hard in our broken world. And if you've grown up in a family where there was abuse and all those kind of difficulties, that's going to be probably really hard to hear. And it's going to take some time to work through and process that. But the reality is the father is a good father. He's not a distorted human father with all sin and all that stuff that goes with it. But I know That father word is difficult for some to hear, but Jesus is not, if your father was not a good, good father, Jesus and the father are not like that. But he says, I want you to go to your good, good father. 
And I want you to focus on him because you already know that he cares for you. Good, good fathers know what their kids need, right? I'm not a good, good father. I'm just, I'm an okay father, right? Ask my kids, right? There's mistakes I make. There's problems that I have, right? But I try to be that. God doesn't have to try. He just is. And if I'm a good father, I know what my kids need. Not necessarily what they want, but what they need. And I want them to grow and to mature into people that love Jesus with all they've got. And hopefully I'm going to provide some stuff along the way that helps. And sometimes that's, you know, some tough love. And sometimes it's some really encouraging arms around the shoulder stuff. But God is a good father. He knows exactly what we need. And so Jesus says, that's how you start the prayer. And and this is super important because we are not going to pray if we have a picture of God as this grumpy old man that is just generally really ticked off at most of us. And it's like, oh, back again, huh? So what is your picture of the heavenly father? Is it a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children? Jesus says that's where it's got to start and we've really got to process through that because I don't think we're going to have any motivation to pray if we've got a distorted picture of who we're praying to. Nobody wants to be around somebody that's always ticked off, right? Never is pleased. He's a good, good father. And Jesus says that's where I want you to begin in connecting with the God of the universe. Several weeks ago, we showed pictures of the universe and its immensity that, you know, there's 200 billion galaxies. Our galaxy has like over 200 billion stars in it, you know, across 93 billion light years. And you look at that and it's like, God doesn't care a rip about me. I'm this little speck on this little planet. But what the scriptures tell us is that God loves each one of us in an amazing way. So much so that he's got the decreasing number of hairs on my head numbered, right? (laughs) And he's aware of everything going on in my life. And he says, our Father, so that's where it starts, and in heaven. And we have a conception of heaven that it's somewhere out there, right? Most of us, right? Somewhere outside of that 93 billion light years of this universe, there's a place called heaven where where God is. And again, I think that conception is going to make it hard to pray because like, oh man, by the time my prayer gets there, it's it's going to take a long, long time, right? Does he really? It's really far out there and maybe far in the future, heaven's to come, but it's like, but when the writers of scripture talk about heaven, it's something very close. It's actually intersecting with our reality. It's a dimensional reality that kind of permeates and penetrates us. I prayed in that prayer, Paul's prayer, or Paul when he was talking to the Ephesians, um, people at, uh, in Athens were saying, you know, in him we live and move and have our being, that, that sense of God's permeating all reality that he's here and oftentimes in Scripture, and when Jesus, when the Father said to Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, it says, he spoke from the heavens. So the heavens are, are near enough for us to hear a voice from that. So the, so the point here is not Jesus saying that God's really far out there. Yeah, he's nice, but man, he's so far away. But no, he's close as the air that you breathe. 
His world penetrates our world, and we just often don't have the ability to see that intersection of that spiritual world with our world. Remember when Elijah was with his service, servant in the town that was surrounded by all these people, and the servant wakes up, and he sees all the foreign enemies out there, and he's like, oh, man, it's, it's all over. Elijah, it's all over. And what does Elijah pray? God, open his eyes. And God opens his eyes to the spiritual reality that's out there, and there were all sorts of angelic forces that were on their side that they could not see at all. And I've heard stories from missionaries that aren't out on the lunatic fringe that, you know, people will come at them and then they'll suddenly go away. And then later on in talking to those people, they said, why did you run away? Well, it was all the warriors that were near you. It's like, what? So this is a spirituality that's present with us. And we live in such a materialistic world that thinking even that way seems bizarre and strange. We're so inculcated in this Western view that the only thing that's real is the stuff that I can knock on. But what started to change my thinking, I realized all the stuff that I knock on, you know, if Einstein was right, E equals MC squared, all the mass that I see is just made up of energy. Where does that energy come from? So the reality is that the spiritual world, I think, is more real than the world that we're in. When Jesus has his resurrection body, it is a body, right? It is able to interact with this dimensional reality, but also it can pass through walls, it can do amazing stuff, it can eat fish, so I'm glad that there's probably going to be eating in heaven, though maybe for the next week or so I probably shouldn't eat so much. But the reality is that I think every... (laughs) When you move up one level in kind of dimensional realities, I think that... Everything that's included before then is there plus more. And I think about this. Often when angels appear in Scripture, they take the form of human beings, right? So they're able to interact with our dimensional reality, but then they can leave that dimensional reality as well. But I'm saying all this to help us to recognize that the little sound that's going on in the background, just don't pay any attention to that. (laughs) To help us to recognize that God is near and present with us. He's not some distant God where as a pagan I have to cut myself and do all sorts of amazing things and show my devotion for praying for hours and hours and repeat these mindless phrases somehow to get God's attention because he may be using the facilities. That's not the God that we serve. We serve a God that's a father that cares and is nearer than the breath that we breathe. That's a father that I'm going to be motivated to pray to. Then he says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a common word. It really means to to make holy your name. And again, this is not, when you hear name in Scripture, it doesn't refer just to the name. A name refers to the character of the person, all that that person is. So when Jesus says, I want you to pray that your Father's name would be hallowed, I want you to pray that the God of this universe that you are praying to, that who he is and the character that he has will be respected and honored and admired and thought of as awesome and amazing. And in my prayers, sometimes what I'll do is I'll just pick out one aspect of the name of God, the character of God. This morning it was just patience. And just, Lord, help me to honor the patience that you have. 
And I look back on my life and said, wow, there's a lot of patience there. Yep, yep. Still a lot of patience required with this one. But that's who God is. So I'm praying that God's name and who he is is not dragged through the mud, that these skewed, bizarre images of what our culture has of God will be corrected and he will be honored as he really is. He says, your kingdom come. Well, didn't Jesus... And they already say in Matthew that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's here. Yes. But it's also to come, right? Theologians talk about the now and the not yet of the kingdom. That the kingdom has penetrated. It has arrived. Satan is defeated and all his forces are defeated, but they are not completely dislodged yet. And I liken this to kind of our own life and sanctification. When we come to Christ, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into my life and changes me. He gives me life from the inside out. Do I instantly become perfect? No. If you have, tell me the secret to that. But generally, that's a process, right? Where God goes into the various compartments of my life, and I don't think at the beginning he overwhelms me with all the stuff that needs to change, but says, okay, let's work on this area, Brett. You thought you were patient, then you had kids. Okay, this is a new venue that we're going to look at, and you can grow in, right? <laughs> and so those are, to me, as, as I'm praying this, it's like, God, you're invading this world, and you want us to be part of your kingdom coming into this world. So I want to be one of your ambassadors, a vanguard of that kingdom. So how I treat other people, how I interact with other people, how I interact with you, God, I want that to be about you and your glory and your honor, recognizing, you know, the stuff that's going on in my life, I think that's really important, and I think, you know, God should think it's more important than his kingdom. And this tells me at the beginning of the prayer, no, maybe there's a bigger picture I have to have. Maybe it's not all about my world and the ro- everything that revolves around me. It's to be about God's kingdom. Not that God is unconcerned about mine, but I like the ordering in this prayer. It's like my primary concern needs to be about his kingdom and how that kingdom will advance. And then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That again, my primary focus should not be on what I want, but what God wants. To me, where do you see this most clearly demonstrated in Jesus' life? Father, I want to be about your kingdom. And he says, what? Okay, that's going to involve a cross. And what does Jesus say? I don't really like that idea. Let's pray a few times about this. Then he gets to that place where he says, what? Not my will but yours be done. And I need to learn that as well. And to recognize that where I am right now, and we can get into huge theological debates about God's sovereignty and free will and all that kind of stuff, but this prayer seems to indicate that on the planet that I'm living on right now, God's will is not always perfectly done. And to me, there's a school of theology in its, what I would call its hyper modes that makes prayer next to impossible because God knows what he's going to do. He's going to do it anyhow. So why should I even pray? It's this fatalistic look at life. It's like, okay, God's going to do what he's going to do, right? It doesn't matter if I'm on board or not. He's got everything planned out. Everything lines up in that way. And so why even pray? If that's the view I have of how things work in this world, there's not going to be a whole lot of psychological motivation to pray, right? You're going to do what you're going to do, God. 
But Jesus here seems to indicate that when we pray, we can actually change outcomes. James seems to indicate the same thing. He says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And I don't think Jesus is playing games saying, oh yeah, yeah, I think you can pray, it's going to change, but it's not going to really pray, change anything because God's going to do what he's going to do anyhow, right? And I know we get into this huge debate about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and to me, any system has its problems. You get to a hyper kind of God is in control of everything issue, then you move into that place where I don't really know what it means in that system for God to love everybody if he's choosing people to go to hell. And I don't know how in that system you get out of making God responsible for evil either. And then you move to the other side, which is kind of, well, God doesn't even know what I'm going to do, so he's kind of contingent upon me and my choices, and God doesn't really know. The, and it's like, well, the future, well, who, God doesn't even know that, so he doesn't even know what's going to turn out in the future. And to me, that's not scriptural either. But to me, you read, read in Scripture stuff like this that my prayers make a difference, but we also read, yeah, God's got this whole thing dialed in from beginning to end. How do we put that together? I've never been able to do it in a completely intellectually satisfying way. There was a Spanish monk, a guy named Molina, that came up with a theory called Molinism. If you want to dive deep in the weeds, you can look that up on Google. That's probably where I come out at the most intellectually satisfying answer to this question. But to me, this is a Psalm 131 issue. God, I don't concern myself basically with things above my pay grade. There's stuff that goes on in the world. If God is the creator of all reality, right? And astrophysicists and quantum physicists tell us there's 11 dimensions of reality. There may be more by now. You know, it's like, okay, I can't even understand the dimensional realities I'm in right now. I can't even understand quantum physics when I read about it, right? It's like, okay, maybe. How does that work, right? So what I have to go with is scripture that says, yes, my choices and my choosing to pray for somebody makes a difference in this world. I'm to pray that God's will be done and not everything happening in this world is God's will. It is not God's will that little kids get abused. It is not. It is not God's will that there's racial injustice. It's not God's will that there's human trafficking. That is not, you can't say, oh, that's, God can work in the midst of that and bring good even out of that, but that is not his Will And Jesus recognized that not everything happens on this world is God's will, but Lord, help me to be part of bringing your will into these various situations. So that's the first section of this prayer. It's all about God. How do I love God, and how do I pray that into the reality of my life? And then he moves on to the second portion of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And again, the pronouns switch from you, you, to us and our and we. And it's interesting, what did Jesus say before about how we should pray? We should go into our room, right? Lock the door and your God who sees what happens in secret will see you. But what's happening in this part of the prayer? Is he said, we read, give us our daily bread. What do we usually think when we read that? Give me my daily bread. Now, Jesus could have said, give me my daily bread. He could have made all of these pronouns singular, right? But he doesn't. He says, give us. 
And he just said, okay, I want you to pray in secret. And then when we're praying this part of the prayer, it's plural pronouns. So what is he saying is you are part of a body. So this is not just about you, right? This is this part of loving people. Give us our daily bread. And I think most of us, I don't get up in the morning wondering, oh man, what are we and the kids going to eat for dinner tonight? Other than what are we going to eat for dinner tonight? It's not will we have food, it's what kind of food do we want tonight? Seafood, yeah, maybe Mexican, or yeah, it's Christmas, well, maybe we'll do a prime rib, that's pretty awesome, you know? It's like, but I don't worry about, you know, where the next meal is coming from. There are believers in the world that do that. So I think what Jesus is saying, when we pray, give us our daily bread, we need to think more than just about my daily bread, but Lord, are there other brothers and sisters that may need daily bread, and how can I be part of you meeting those needs through the resources that I have. And you look, the early church was just amazing. They brought all their stuff and had stuff in common, so nobody lacked. They seemed to get this idea. John seems to hit this really hard in 1 John. He says, "Don't Christians, don't go babbling on and on and on about how much you love God if you're not loving your brothers and sisters. The great commandment hangs together. You can't say, oh, I'm all about loving God and not love our neighbor. Right? Both of those go together, and we see it in this prayer here. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. Gives you an idea of how often God wants us to pray this prayer, right? Our daily bread. Remember any other stories where people that were in God's service needed daily bread, right? It goes back to the manna. Every day they gathered the manna. And if you look at the section that deals with humans here It's all a posture of, I'm dependent on you, God. Give us our daily bread. Hey, man, I've got a great job. I work hard. I bust my rear end. I've got enough, right? He says, well, okay, do you not recognize that all the gifts and the talents and the places you are and the positions you have are not a gift of God? How many of you were involved in the architecture of your DNA? I want a brain about this size. I want to be in this. All of this is gift. So Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? So it's a posture of humility. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. This is so central to the kingdom and what it means to be a person in the kingdom is to be a person of grace and forgiveness. Not only that we have received, but that we give out to other people. And in verses 14 and 15, he says, this is really serious. And I think what he's saying there, if you really understand how much you have been forgiven, you will forgive other people. That we all need forgiveness and we need it regularly. But I thought Jesus took care of all of our sins on the cross. He did, right? But I think as we walk through life, we still need that confession not to enable us to enter into a relationship, but to keep that relationship close. Remember Jesus, when he washed the disciples' feet, comes to Peter, Peter says, no way, you're not going to wash me. And, and Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have, you don't have a part with me. And Peter's like, whoa, give me a bath, man. And Jesus said, no, if you've had a bath, you don't need to be cleansed again, but you need your feet washed. And I don't think he was talking about foot washing there. I think he was saying that you are clean, but as you walk through this life, you pick up dirt, you you stumble, and that needs to be confessed and dealt with. 
So that recognition that daily we need the grace and forgiveness of God, and when we recognize that, then we are called to give that to other people, even people we don't necessarily like. And forgiveness does not mean we minimize the situation. It does not mean reconciliation, that I'm close with that person. Sometimes, you know, in Romans, Paul says, you know, as far as it's up to you, live at peace with all people. Sometimes, you know, it takes two to tango and you can't live at peace. And sometimes it seems like if there's been sin, you don't be alone with that person again. You go once. If that doesn't work, then you bring others along with you. So there's a place for distance. But the heart of the believer is, God, I... I don't wish ill on that person. I wish that person would come to embrace you. And though I can't be in their presence, Lord, I pray good for them and change for them. And that sometimes is a process that takes a while, especially if you've been hurt badly. But that's the process that God's calling us into to be forgiving people. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil or the evil one. And again, you know, James is pretty clear that God doesn't, tempt anybody, so he's not talking about, so it's either Jesus don't let us be tested beyond what we can handle, or it's the sense that we, and this is how I take it more, we are in a world that is full of temptations and there's spiritual forces out there that are intent on bringing me down. And again, this is a strange thing in our culture, we don't like to think about that, but I think one of the reasons we as believers struggle so much is we don't recognize this reality. If you go and you look at Christian books in the store, so many of them are self-help. Okay, I'm struggling with lust. What do I do? Well, I need to bounce my, I need to do all this stuff, and all of this is horizontal, right? And it's like, okay, there's a place for that, for discipline in those areas, but if I don't first go to God and say, God, I am powerless against this. You've got to help me. I'm in a spiritual battle, and I can get taken out at any moment because those forces are a whole lot stronger than me. I'll share a story about a friend of mine that came to Christ in a college ministry, and I've shared this before, but he came out of the porn industry down in L.A. and moved up to to Boise when we were living there, and uh, he came to Christ, and the first week that he came to Christ, he was working as a short-order cook in the local university, and he wasn't a guy that was stunning looker, man. He, he, just, he, just, he had two women come up to the ordering place and said, hey, can we get together? I'd like to hook up with you. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? It's like, okay, there's a spiritual force behind you know, what is going on here. There's a temptation that's being placed right in front of this guy right now. Why? Because he had just come to Christ, and they didn't like that. And it was so obvious that he kind of laughed and said, this never happens to me. It's like, there's got to be a force at work behind this because I'm just not that kind of guy, right, that is, this happens to. But the reality is you look at life and you realize, okay, there's forces out there that bring stuff into your life that are designed to cause you to stumble. And Jesus says, daily I want you to come to me and say, protect me in this spiritual realm. It's really important. It's to be done every day. And we think, oh man, we've got this dialed in, I've got all my knowledge, I can all this. And it's like, no, no, you need the help of the Holy Spirit to protect you in the battle that you're in. Read Ephesians 6. So there's the prayer. Just a couple real practical things at the end. Again, I'm assuming Jesus actually wants us to pray like this when he says, pray like this. So, how do we allow this to inform 
are praying. Again, we've talked about it. I don't think it's the exact words, but I think it's a really good practice to approach prayer with this kind of thematic structure. God, help me to start with you. Help me to remember that you're my Father. Help me to remember that I'm here to honor and glorify you and see your name honored and glorified in every way. Help me to be about your kingdom and your purposes and your will first and foremost. And I know you're a good father, and I know you're going to take care of me, and it's the seek first the kingdom, and he'll take care of that. So this isn't a prayer form. Yes, I'm going to you, God. I want to be part of what you're doing, even though that's sometimes hard and I don't like it, but I know ultimately that is going to be best for me and best for you. And then to move to my concerns and my needs. Okay, daily sustenance, the forgiveness that I need, the spiritual protection that I desperately need in the midst of this broken world. God, help me in there. And again, you know, you, you look at the practice, and, and Protestants get really nervous when you have like, oh, he's going in a way. And that time, they would pray basically morning, 3 p.m., and evening. And you see this in the early church as well, right? Um, in Acts 2, a lot of your translations will say about the early church, they devoted themselves to prayer. Literally, it's they devoted themselves to the prayers. So it's a plural. So I think what's being referred to is those times of prayer. Because you see that's in Acts 2. You see in Acts 3, at 3 o'clock, when people go to the temple to pray, Peter was up there praying. Daniel, right? Daniel 6. Guys are trying to take him down. It's like, we can't touch that guy, man. He's clean in every way. The only way we're going to take him down is by hitting his religion. So we've got to make a decree. You can't worship anybody else. And that says Daniel did what he was accustomed to doing. He would pray morning and the afternoon and the evening. And so I think, you know, for me, this prayer has informed how I do my morning stuff. And some of you are morning and night people, but you read Psalm 55, Dan, or David there has prayed in the evening, the morning, and midday. So it seems like there's a lot of evidence in Scripture that this kind of praying three times a day may not be a bad thing to do. So I've been doing it in the morning, but I'm going to try and set my little beep on my alarm to do a midday prayer. And again, to me, even the reciting of this prayer in the midst of life is like, okay, it reorients our perspective. You're dealing with an angry customer or a obnoxious professor or co-worker and it's like okay God forgive me my sins as I forgive other people like this guy that is bugging me right now but I think there's something about us as human beings is that we are just we're prone to forget right we go through life and we just get consumed with the horizontal and I think when we have some of these practices, it's like, okay, I'm going to pray this in the morning. I'm going to pray it sometime during the middle of the day, and I'm going to do it in the evening. You know, I don't have to be religious about that. God's not going to reject you if you do that, but I'm just, maybe try it. See how it works for you as we start this new year. And again, you do it not to draw attention to yourself. You don't even have to say this stuff aloud, but that sense of, okay, God, I want to connect with you, acknowledge who you are, acknowledge who I am, and live abiding in you, hopefully following this great commandment, to love you with all I've got and to love the people around me. And I don't think we're going to be able to do that. And I think Jesus would agree unless we're abiding in him. And one of the ways we abide in him is by praying the prayer that he's given us to pray.
So stand if you would, and let's just pray this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is the addition of the early church. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. God bless you all as you walk with him into this new year. If anybody wants to talk to me about anything, please come up afterwards. Have an awesome, almost first week of the new year.